kitirangi e tuiho nei, hokiraro kite papa e takoto nei, hokiroto ki te naka o tena o tena o tato, hoki waho kite fai o kite o marama tihei mauriora. Kutumiki tua tahi e pa, tenei te tuku mihi ki a koe, te tokotoru tapu ko te tama, ko te matua, ko te wairua, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou. Ki te whenua e karapotia, mihi mai, mihi mai, e nā rangatira, tēnā koe Dave, tēnā koe nā rangatira e noho ana ki tēnā, Ko waiau, ko Taranaki tōku maunga, ko Te Atiawa tōku awa. Engari, e noho ana au, e nai nei ki Whangaro, Raglan. Got that one? Yeah. Ko Jay Luka tōku ingoa. Hi guys, it's nice to be with you tonight. Thanks Dave for the invite. I have been in bed for the last four days, so my apologies for that. So if I do... Just go to the back of the stage and have a big cough out. It's because there's some uh, demons getting cast out of me. Um, um, little tiny ones. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's good to be here tonight. Uh, I just had a, um, during the worship there, I just had a verse pop into mind. I want to start off um, by reading this out. Um, ooh, where, where, where I can find it. This is from the end of the book of um, first, chapter, uh, first Chronicles. Says this: As for the for the events of King David's reign, from beginning to end, they are written in the records uh, of Samuel the seer, the records of Nathan the prophet, and the rec records of Gad the seer. In other words, the only reason that we know the stories of King David and about King David's life is because the prophet wrote them down. The prophets wrote down the stories. It is the job of the prophets to hold the story. It's a job of a prophet to tell you the history, to tell you the story of the land, to tell you the story about where we come from and where we're going. So while my, um, my talk tonight it might be a little bit different, what I believe I am, uh, what God is calling me to, to do is we are a prophetic nation, right? Yeah. Awesome. For you to be prophetic means you need to know our history. You need to know our story. And so tonight's talk um, uh, is based, uh, I, I want to tell you very, uh, uh, a bit of a bro story uh, of the Te Tiriti or Waitangi. So very quickly, um, you will know the articles. Let me quickly run through the articles of this. The, f uh, the first article of the treaty has to do with governance and sovereignty, where all the, the um, mismatch comes in between the English and the Pākehā version. It has, uh, in other words, who has the right to create a flag? Can you remember this flag? Who knows what this flag's called? Laser Kiwi, Laser Kiwi flag. That's right. This was submitted as a, this went into the competition for the new Kiwi flag. So Article One is about that, uh, about uh, governance, about sovereignty. Article Two is about chieftainship and trade me. In other words, uh, Article Two says that the chiefs can uh, own their land and their whenua as long as they want to own it. If they want to sell it, then put it up on Trade Me and the government will buy it off them first. Okay, so that's what Article 2 is about. Article 3 is about citizenship, that as Māori we get the, the right to be British citizens. Now in 2018, that doesn't sound like much, uh, but back in the day that's, that was pretty profound, uh, uh, which, which is one of the things I'll talk about soon. 
Now, uh, if you've ever seen an uh, image of the treaty or read about it, then what you would have read of is these three articles, Article 1, 2, and 3. Um, but actually, in the official treaty, there, uh, there's what is called the unwritten fourth, and that is the right to religion. But not any religion, the right to specifically Protestantism, Catholicism, and Maoritanga. What happened on the day that the treaty was signed is that um, the good old Baptist fellow, Jean-Baptiste Pompilia, wee wee, a French man, he, um, <laughs> he uh, leaned over and he, he, he said that, the, that religion needs to be discussed as part of this. Now, under international law, because, uh, because Christianity was discussed on that day, what that means is that under the treaty, Catholicism... And Protestantism, in other words, Christianity and Māori tanga, Māori spirituality, is a bona fide part of the Treaty of Waitangi in this country. Something that the Secular Education Network knows nothing about. Um, so, uh, I just want you to hold that there. That really, under under the Treaty of Waitangi, the role of Christianity is protected in Aotearoa New Zealand. Interesting, eh? Right. So, so that's a little bit about the articles, what the treaty says. So uh, those four things. So let's get into this. You've probably seen Bill Bryson's book, book A Short History of, nearly, of um, nearly Everything. So I've just added of Nearly Everything to Do with the Treaty by Jay Luca. It's got raving reviews from The Guardian. You can read all about it. So what I want to do is I don't want to talk about those principles and those articles. What I want to do is I want to tell you the story. I want to tell you, and when I say tell you the story, I'm telling you a story. It's obviously not the complete story. When anyone tells you any sort of history, they're automatically not telling you 90% of it. Uh, so, but what I want to do is tell you a, 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 a percentage of the story that you haven't been told, either in your schools or in our uh, Christian upbringing. Uh, uh, I want to... Uh, I want to jump into five things to do with the context of the treaty, about how the treaty even came about. Um, so the first one is this place here, Kororareke. Who's been to Kororareke? Kapai. Who's been to Russell? Yeah. Oh, good. You, then you, if you've been to Russell, you've all been to Kororareke. Right? It's the uh, 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 Māori name for Russell. So in the 1830s, uh, sorry, when the treaty was signed in 1840, there'd been 70 years of global contact. In the decade of the 1830s, we had a thousand sailing ships coming to the Bay of Islands every year from England, Ireland, uh, from Scandinavia, Holland, Portugal, India, China, Samoa. Um, sailing ships were coming here from all over the world. So the forces of globalization were well and truly hitting the shores of Aotearoa in the late 1830s. Now, you've got a 1,000 sailing ships coming here every year. You've got an average of about 30, 30 people on board those sailing ships. So you've got 30,000 visitors coming to Kororareka every year from all around the globe. Uh, now, um, any guesses what these 30,000 visitors want to do when they get to the Bay of Islands? They want to go to church, right? No, no they want to get smashed, man. <laughs> They want to get drunk, they want to drink rum, and they want to partake with the local lovely Polynesian wahine, right? Um, they want to have sex. Kororareka became a massive brothel. 
Have you heard of a guy called Charles Darwin? Yeah, yeah so Charles Darwin uh, comes down here in the late 1830s, and in his journal he called Kororarika the hellhole <coughs> hell of the South Pacific. So the Bay of Islands in the late 1830 had garnered this reputation that if you want a good time, get down near the end of the South Pacific Seas because it's party central. This situation of all of these out-of-control people coming from mainly from Europe was one of the things that forced the need for the treaty to come into being. So everyone say kororareka. Okay, cool, goodbye. That's the first one. Second one I want to talk about is this fella, Edward Gibbon Wakefield. Now, is anybody a Wakefield in this room? Um, because if you are, apologies about how I'm going to talk about your tupuna. Uh, I'm sure that he would agree with me now as he's um, uh, been enlightened on the other side of the veil. Um, but uh, let me tell you a little bit about this guy. As a young man, he uh, got into a bit of mischief. He, he ran off with a 16-year-old uh, politician's daughter. He got caught up with, got thrown in jail. When he was in jail, he studied economics and he asked himself this question, how can I make a truckload of cash? <laughs> in other words, how can I make some funds? He was interested in, um, in uh, making capital and making funds. What his brainwave was is that he was realised we are part of the British Empire, the largest empire in the world, and we've got all these colonies around the world. And what a, one other thing that we have here in England is we've got all these poor people living in the slums of Bristol and London and Manchester and York, why don't we flush out the slums of England by making the poor people back in England uh, uh, landowners in some other colonies around the world? So what these guys began to do in 1837, they formed a group called the New Zealand Association, which eventually became the New Zealand Company. And they lobbied the government in England to go, hey, guys, we've set up this infrastructure. We've heard there's all this nonsense down there with all these sailors and stuff like this. We've set up the infrastructure. We've got all these wealthy business people behind us. Why don't you give us the right to go and colonise New Zealand? Now, the government, that didn't happen because what I will share next. But because the government didn't uh, let them go and do it, they, they, they thought, oh, well, stuff you. We're going to go and do it anyway. So they advertised the sale of land in New Zealand and they sent out for the land sailors off settlers off before they even owned land in New Zealand. Now, interesting thing is that probably for most of us Kiwis is that we would probably find some whakapapa connections back to these first few boats. My tūpuna on my mum's side came in on the first um, New Zealand company ship that went, that went into New Plymouth. Uh, all of these people were trying to find a new life. But one of the forces uh, that created the need for the treaty is because even though the British government didn't want these guys to do it, they didn't have any jurisdiction, and so these guys just decided to come out and do it anyway. Uh, in complete contrast, even though the missionaries were saying to these guys, we don't, please don't do this. What had happened in New Zealand in the 1830s was one of the greatest revivals the world had ever known. Uh, Māori came to Jesus in the 1830s in an unprecedented uh, manner. Missionary George Clark, he wrote in 1845, 
an estimation of 65,000 Māori attending church on Sunday out of a population of about 90 to 120,000. So you do the math, that's phenomenal. The missionaries didn't want any settlers to come because what was happening was that in the globe at this time, the missionary work in New Zealand was one of the most amazing works happening anywhere around the world. And that the CMS, were, who were just a new, new kid on the block as far as the mission agency goes, had garnered this reputation because what had happened down there in New Zealand with Māori coming to the gospel. And, and the missionaries didn't want any settlers to come. However, this guy saw a financial opportunity and began to send settlers over here. So everyone say the New Zealand company. Okay, so that's the second reason. Now, the third reason is what we call the humanitarians, or um, uh, in our Christian history books, we call them the Clapham sect. Have you heard of a guy called William Wilberforce? All right, what's he famous for? Right, ending slavery. So these guys, Clapham sect, a group of 25 to 20 to 30 men and women who they would meet at a guy's house named John Venn, and they'd, ask us, they'd go to church on Sunday, then they'd come home and they'd ask the question, how can we change England? How can we transform England? So these guys, they started the CMS. William Wilberforce writes to Samuel Marsden, say, hey, we've started this new organisation. And Samuel Marsden eventually comes up and shares the gospel here in New Zealand, right? Out of the invitation of William Wilberforce. Now, William Wilberforce's nephew, Sir James Stephen, he was working in the colonial office in England in 1837 through to the early 1840s. The reason that the New Zealand company didn't get the rights to go and colonise New Zealand is because of Sir James Stephen, who was William Wilberforce's nephew, standing up going, hey, well, British government, no way, you cannot let this business go and colonise New Zealand. Now, by this time in the late 1830s, the British Empire had, had, a, a, had grown a conscience that is a direct overflow from the Wesleyan revival through to the Wilberforce and the Clapham sect and through to Sir James Stephen and a couple of other members, second generation members of the Clapham sect who were in power in politics at the time and had their voice. And they stood up on the inside of the British Parliament and they said, you know what, guys, if we look at all of our expanding British Empire history, you know how we've done it in Ghana, in Sierra Leone, how we did it in India, how we did it in Canada, how we did it in Australia? It's not good. We have to realise that if we're going to go and colonise New Zealand, there is a people down in New Zealand called the New Zealand Māori. If we're going to go and do this, then we have to realise that we have to go in with a treaty of partnership. And that treaty needs to say a few specific things, some of which I've uh, shared with you that are in Article 1, 2, and 3. Uh, the, the likes of becoming citizens. Up until this time, no English treaty had ever offered any Indigenous people the, the rights to full British citizenship ever before. Wow. This is one of the geniuses of the Clapham sect that not too many people know about. This is why in New Zealand, how many treaties do we have? Right, essentially one. In the United States of America, there's over 700 treaties that most Americans don't know anything about because those treaties are charlatan treaties. 
The treaty in New Zealand, at its original intention, was first thought of by followers of Christ, working on the inside of the British government, working for truth and justice. That's why our treaty remains. Because right at its conception, there's righteousness, truth and justice at its conception. And every New Zealander grows up knowing something about it, whether that's misinformation or correct information. It it does matter, but most New Zealanders grow up hearing something about it because there's, there's a seed of God's spirit in it. And we are living in a generation where it's coming to fruition. So everyone say the humanitarians. Okay, so the first one is Koro. Second one, New Zealand Company. Third one, good stuff. Okay, so what were some of the reasons that our Māori leaders were thinking? Why did our Māori chiefs want to enter into a treaty? Um, And because Taika Waititi is the Māori of the moment, he's going to be our honorary Māori today. And if you haven't seen the movie, What We Do in the Shadows, you're probably not going to get these next slides, but that's okay. Um, So the first reasons why our chiefs wanted to enter into the treaty is because our chiefs just had to look across the waters at Kororareka and say, see those people over there, all drunk and partying and making a whole bunch of mischief? They're not our people. They're someone else's people. So if the Queen wants to send in the Governor to come and sort out those people, then that's awesome. Please come and sort those guys out. That will be great. So that was one of the first reasons our our chiefs had an interest in entering into the treaty. Um, Another reason was because these people from Europe were bringing uh, iPhones and uh, flat screen TVs and uh, Falcon XR6s uh, uh, and uh, Game Boys and all this sort of stuff. In other words, all all this new technology was coming. And from a, from a chief's perspective in 1840, the treaty is a trade agreement. Our chiefs really wanted to, how could we secure pathways of trade with all, all of this cool new technology um, with our people? So that was a, a big interest there. Um, and the, the third thing I'll talk about um, is that from a, from a Māori perspective, uh, We were a bona fide nation state in the eyes of the globe under the United Tribes of Aotearoa. In 1835, Hea Whakaputanga had been to sign the declaration, the New Zealand Declaration of Independence. It had actually been received in the British government and received by King George as well. So um, Māori knew that according to the global standards, we were a nation state able to enter into a treaty partnership with another nation state. Make sense? It wasn't just this little, oh, we will help, help us out, this sort of thing. Um, there, there are, uh, like I said at the start, I'm, I'm missing out 90% of the story. There are situations as well, like trying to beat the French. Um, up in the Northland, Māori didn't like the French because French had come and slaughtered 200 Māori one day because... A couple few years before that, Māori slaughtered six of them. So Māori were very wary of the French and knew that they, they were coming, coming down, down through Polynesia. Uh, and, and many of the chiefs, the Napu chiefs in particular, had already met King George since about 1810 and 1820, uh, heading over to England and that. So that's just a few reasons why Māori wanted to enter into uh, the treaty. 
But let me talk to you about this fella. His name is uh, Karufa. Everyone say Karufa. Karufa. Say, so Karufa means four eyes. Uh, um, so Māori called this fella Karufa, four eyes, because of he had four eyes. Um, his Pākehā name was Henry Williams. And Henry Williams really is the key person in the whole story about why we really do have the Treaty of Waitangi. Um, Henry um, was the head missionary at the time, in the 1830s. He was the most respected uh, uh, Pākehā in the country. Many chiefs fully respected this guy. When, when, um, when Ngāpui would go into battle and fight other tribes, he would go in at times with them and say no and try and stand in the gap for peace and actually stand in between these warring parties. He had a lot of mana, a lot of kudos amongst the people. So he was a, he was a key player. Have you heard of a fella called Taropraha? Right, so Taropraha's son, Tamihana, he got fed up with his father's warring and eventually became a Christian. He heard that of this fella Karufa in the Bay of Islands and that there were missionaries up there. So in 1839, him and his cousin, Martin they get in a boat and they sail up to the Bay of Islands to meet Henry Williams. And they go, hey, Henry, bro, have you got a missionary? We want a missionary down in Altaki. And Henry's like, oh, no, sorry, I don't have one. Uh, however, a 21-year-old kid, he'd only been in the country for a week, he overheard the conversation, and he goes, oh, I'm a severe asthmatic, I'll go, because I'm about to die anyway, so why don't I go and at least get it started? And Henry's like... Awesome, yep, sounds good to me. So these four fellas, they sail down the East Coast in 1839. They come into, they come into the harbour um, of Whanganui Atara. Uh, and they come in there and they see all these ships there. And they're like, well, who, who are you guys? And they land and they're like, hi, we are the New Zealand company. We've just bought Wellington for, with 400 blankets a whole bunch of gunpowder and muskets and trinkets and 12 pairs of suits. And um, Henry's like, well, kōrero Māori koe. Do you guys know how to, you know, guys know how to talk Māori? Like, you guys, you guys know how tribal land works and ownership? And they're like, no, no, not really. Henry's really not happy. He's not happy at all that these guys have come in and they've, they've bought all of Wellington off six hapu, um, for the, 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 the trinkets that they bought it equated to 400 pounds. Now that same winter, a whaler had made 300 pounds just whaling. So you think one whaler, a Pākehā whaler made 300 pounds and then six different hapu, so a couple of hundred people, they were, they were given 400 pounds worth of stuff. Like, so not really a fair deal for all of Wellington. Even... Um, Henry's pretty upset with this. He gets in a boat, he's going, he sails back out of Wellington and he's going, he gets off to Kapiti where he's going to go and meet with Taropra. A storm blows him over to Nelson. He gets over to Nelson, uh, Golden Bay area, and he sees that the New Zealand company had bought all of Nelson as well. And he's like, what? This is crazy. Uh, he eventually makes it back to, um, to Ōtaki, who, who is with Taropra, who's hearing the stories about all these... The, it's, it's in the air that people are coming from over the shores and they, 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 they want to buy land. So check this out. Henry then walks home to Waitangi. It's by here. Uh, he walks to Tauranga and then when he gets to Tauranga, he gets in a boat and sails back up. But everywhere he's going, he's hearing uh, 
the stories of um, these settlers, these people that are beginning, uh, it's, it's in the air, these people who want to come and they want land. And Henry knows that on his, all of his journey back home, he's realising that, man, unless... He, now, he'd been an ex-naval officer in the British Army. He knows the British Empire. He knows the British colonising mechanism. He knows what's going to happen. And he, he knows more than anyone that something needed to happen to secure the rights of the land for the chiefs. Not in the eyes of the chiefs, but for all of these international people that were coming from across the waters. Something needed to take place. Now, he gets home about 11 days before a fella called Captain Hobson shows up. Captain Hobson shows up with a draft document of the treaty. Him and his uh, secretary and James Busby, they create what we, what we know as the Treaty of Waitangi and they give it to Henry on the night of February 4th. Uh, um, February 4th, uh, 1840, and Henry and his son Edward, they stay up all night translating the treaty from the, the Pākehā version into the Māori version, and then retranslate the Māori version out into the English version. And that English version that's a translation out of the Māori version is the official English version. But Henry's given that all night, and He's, he does that mahi all night on the night of the 4th. Chiefs come and sign it, uh, come and discuss it on the 5th. They go back home, discuss it at night, and then on the 6th of February 1840, they come ready to dis- discuss the Tiriti or Waitangi, and of course they sign it. Um, and Honeheke, you know Honeheke, what was he famous for? Chop down the flagpole, right? You know, that's what we all learned in our social studies classes, but what they didn't teach us in our social studies classes is the reason he cut it down was because it's on his land but that's part we don't get. Um, but this is what he says. He says, it's not for us, it's for you. It's our, uh, for our fathers. It's for you to say, to decide, what shall it be? Uh, it's for you to say, is this, is this good for us? And Henry, having just done his journey, is like, yes, this is a good, good thing. Uh, this will secure the rights of your land for you. It says, Her Majesty the Queen of England confirms and guarantees to the chiefs and tribes of New Zealand and to the respective families and individuals thereof the full, exclusive and undisturbed possession of their lands and estates, forests, fisheries and other properties which they may collectively or individually possess so long as it is their wish and desire to retain the same in their possession. So this is what the English version says and the Māori version is an accurate translation of this. Um, now, so it says that Māori can retain their land as long as they want to. I don't know if you've seen these off the New Zealand Encyclopedia, but um, the dark represents uh, land in Māori ownership. So this is 1860. Uh, then we go to 1890, 1910, and 1939. 99 years after the signing uh, of uh, a treaty that said Māori could retain their lands. In 1860, the entire South Island was gone. Uh, from a Naitahu Nati Māmoi, Nati Kuata, Nati Kuya, uh, from the iwi down there. Um, uh, so currently, the current figures are, is that right now, Māori own 4.8% of Māori land in New Zealand. Now, here's, here's a couple of reasons why I say this. Um, when the treaty went round the country in 1840, 500 chiefs signed it. There were nine treaty sheets that went around 
uh, the country in 1840. All nine of those treaty sheets were taken around by missionaries. Because the Hobson and the government didn't know how to speak Māori and didn't have any relationship with Māori. The only reason that our chief signed the treaty was because our people trusted the missionaries. So here's the thing. The Treaty of Waitangi is the story of Christianity in New Zealand that most of the church doesn't know anything about. It's the story of the mahi, of the work of what our spiritual ancestors believed in and done that we don't know much about. Now, this document is one of the most, I think, one of the most incredible documents in the world. It is a document that has been borne out about every single booth here is about, about the gospel. It was birthed out of a belief of the equality of human beings. It was birthed out of the belief of not, of, let me ask you this question, who's the sovereign of England? What's her name? Okay, who holds sovereignty over New Zealand? Does she have the sovereign power? Parliament does, right? So the Queen is the sovereign, but she doesn't have sovereign power. Parliament has the power. So her sovereignty is a shared sovereignty with Parliament. What the understanding of the treaty was, was a shared sovereignty between the Queen of England and the chiefs of Aotearoa setting up a governing body for this country. Now, here's, here's the thing. This is the result of men and women's belief in the stories of Jesus, believing in the equality of humanity. This document comes out of the hard-fought uh, fires of faith. This is where this thing comes. Henry, Henry and Mary Ann Williams uh, believed that the Treaty of Waitangi was what he, he called it, the, the Chief's Magna Carta. It was their document of freedom that says that the royal will, no long, will not live like this, but live in relationship like this with the chiefs of Aotearoa. Yeah. This is what the Treaty of Waitangi is all about. But to, for 177, 178 years, that hasn't been the way yet. Right? Now, here's the thing, and here's what I really, really want to... Uh, one of the things I, in closing I want to leave with you. The treaty, and the reason that a lot of our country doesn't understand it is because the gospel element of it, right? the ministers of reconciliation have been taken out of it. Exactly. Who, who's been given the ministry of reconciliation? Jacinda Ardern has, right? Right, St. Paul charges us. You have been given the ministry of reconciliation. What is happening in our time right now is God is wanting for you to prophesy, to speak the living word to the core of the society. And the only reason you can speak to the core of society is when you know the core of the story. You cannot be a Christian without being a student of history. You are powerless without accessing 2,000 years of history. 
You only have power because you believe in a story that happened 2,000 years ago. The Treaty of Waitangi is a story of only 170 years ago. You need to access that story again. Now let me live here, give you a little, show you a little picture here in closing. Right. Uh, which is the odd one out? Right. So very, very, very quickly in wrapping, when we see these diagrams, we go, well, this is the odd one out, right? Because it's the shortest. So a couple of years ago in Mangani, when I used to live in Mangani, I showed this to a Māori bro of mine, and I go, hey, bro, which is the old one out? And he goes, this one. And I go, oh, why that one? He goes, oh, because this is a child. So because that's a child, that's mum and dad. So the child belongs to mum and dad, making this one an uncle. <laughs> so the uncle's the odd one out. Now, he, he came up with that straight away. Now, the, and the social anthropologist, Paul Hibbert, who... Um, who came up with this diagram. He's taken this diagram around indigenous peoples all around the world. And indigenous peoples all around the world say the exact same thing. See, in, in, in the West, we've been trained to see things in individual categories. True. You know why there was a mass revival here in New Zealand? That's because Māori were tribal people and not, not all the time, but on many occasions, whole hapu came to Christ. The missionaries had never seen that before. In the West, we've been trained to see things in isolated individual categories. We've been trained to see individual scriptures, individual books, and not the whole picture. Whereas the indigenous mind, the first way of thinking it's not by what something is and in of itself, but by what it belongs to. It's a complete different way of thinking and relating. This is what the Treaty of Waitangi is about. Two very different ways of thinking, two different ways of seeing the world coming together and making decisions. Now, can you remember the foreshore and seabed debate, right? Yeah. Um, when that was going on, the, the, two, um, the two CO uh, chief officers of the largest iwi at the time went and sat down with John Key and his Type 5 and shared with these guys and said, look, there's no iwi in this country that wants to see the foreshore of New Zealand owned by any individual or any <coughs> iwi, not be available for anyone. Why don't we write a law in the Foreshore Act that says that the seabed of New Zealand can only be owned by New Zealanders yet to be born. What that means is that every New Zealander alive right now can only hold it in custody. Every New Zealander alive can't sell it, can't give it away. We can only hold it for our kids who aren't even come yet. That's what you call indigenous creativity, right? So, of course, John Key goes, sorry, we can't do that. The Foreshore Act was signed, Takatai Moana Bill. And six weeks later, the first application to mine the foreshore was on the government's table. Because all of that time that that story was happening in the country and in the newspapers, and who owns it, international companies were lobbying the government wanting to mine our land. That's called economic injustice. 
what the Treaty of Waitangi is about is about two different ways of thinking coming together and calling our nation and making decisions for our nation. This is who we are. And this comes out of the seed of the gospel. The seed of the gospel. Now, here's my last slide. 2040. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got 22 years till we celebrate the 200th anniversary of the treaty. And two and 20, what that means that, is that we've got 22 years to change this country's opinion about what this thing is even about. To take it from uh, protest, antagonism, uh, uh, whatever you think it might be, to true cultural creativity when we can take the best of Western philosophy and science match that with the best of mātauranga Māori, Māori thought, Māori worldview concepts, and come up with ways and creative solutions for the world. This is what the Treaty of Waitangi is about. In an hour in the global climate where the West is trying to grasp on, trying to find its identity by making itself great again, or saying, Europe, we don't need you, at that time where there's all these cultural clashes happening, God is raising up a nation that knows how to think with multiple cultural perspectives. This is what the gift of the indigenous Māori world is to New Zealand right now. And just as God sent Henry and Mary Ann Williams into Te Ao Māori, God is sending the Church of New Zealand again into the Māori world. He wants us to learn from a different way of thinking and being in this country that we call Aotearoa. This is why the Treaty of Waitangi is a profound document that is a part of your spiritual heritage that you can be proud of. Kia ora. That's cool, eh? It's cool, eh? Have you heard that story? Have you learned something new today? It's very cool, eh? I genuinely think Waitangi Weekend is such an important weekend for the church. This is our heritage. This is our story. And again, part of our church's vision is that God is wanting to make all things new. That starts in our hearts as we are made new, but we also believe that it's happening in our country. And one of the clearest ways we can see God working is amongst and through the treaty and through Māori. And so this is part one of an ongoing conversation for us. This is just a starting place for us to figure out that's the story. And next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us as a church? What does this mean for us as individuals? And so we're going to finish today here because I want us to go away and talk about this. Talk with someone else. What did you learn? Can you talk about your family? Can you talk with your families about the Treaty of Waitangi? What does that look like? This is a conversation beginning for us that I think will have long and very fruitful journeys. Does that sound good? All right, so let me just finish as we close in prayer.